Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. So we're up here in this talk show style uh, setup. Um, we were joking before the service started that we should have had two ferns on either side of us, and we could, have, we could have done an episode of Between Two Ferns. We were trying to decide which one of us would be Zach Galifianakis in that scenario. Uh, you got the beard and the reddish, the brown, like brown reddish hair. That would, okay. Um, it, I, I was, I was going to say you're awkward enough to make it work, but um, no. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're very welcome. So many of you know Jonathan or have met Jonathan. Um, uh, we've been friends for six, seven years. We've, been, we've known each other for six, seven years. Um, we've been friends for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, Jonathan and his family landed here when they first moved to, Den- to the Denver area a little over a year ago. Um, and have since um, decided they needed to find a church closer to home now that they're settled uh, because they live up in Thornton, and so we, uh, we've we been grateful to have them with us for the past year uh, and a bit, um, and uh, am grateful now that they're able to find a place to plug in closer to home. Today, the reason Jonathan is here with me um, is because our Q&R today is about political engagement. Now, we have, obviously, elections upcoming. We've got a presidential election season that is beginning. Um, you all have gotten the blue ballot uh, books for local votes um, coming up here soon, and uh, we're in the middle of the book of Esther, which is really all about leveraging political power for the disenfranchised and for the oppressed, and so um, I thought this was a very appropriate time to do this particular Q&R, which we'll start calling them Q&Rs, like I said before, um, because you'll get responses um, with the understanding that we could always be wrong. Well, I could be wrong. Jonathan's going to be right. Um, the, uh, the reason I wanted Jonathan here for this is because, uh, if you didn't know, Jonathan is actually Dr. Jonathan Romig, um, and his doctorate is in this particular realm of Christian political engagement. And so I'm going to let him introduce himself and that particular piece of his life uh, to you. Sure, thank you. I, when I think Q&R, I also think like questions and rage. Uh, because this is a political engagement conversation, so this should be fun. Uh, and I haven't preached since I finished up at the pastorate, so like, I felt like Brandon was luring me to the stage. But hey, come talk about politics. I think this is an, an engaging subject, and you should only do uh, you know, a, a doctoral study on something that really interests you. And this does interest me. Like, how, how do we as Christians engage in the public square? How do we represent Christ in our world and our culture? Uh, and yeah, we'll get some responses today. All these opinions are opinions, right? It's my opinion, Brandon's. We're not the word of God. Uh, and so we approach this with a sense of humility, you know, trying to share what we're learning uh, and that this is a process. It's not a destination. Uh, you know, I began asking the question after the 2016 political uh, election, how do we engage with our world? And so I began to think about it and start to read. uh, And then I got an opportunity to do a doctor of ministry and this, uh, we called it the Akinge Fellows Program, 
just like how do you engage as a Christian in art and in politics and in healthcare? Uh, and that counted as credit towards my doctor of ministry. And then I just continued the journey. Uh, so if any of you want to read my 500-page paper on uh, political discipleship, uh, maybe you've never heard that term before, political discipleship. You know, as followers of Jesus, we believe all of our life belongs to Christ, right? And so that means our parenting, our finances, uh, our church engagement, every moment of every day. And that includes our political engagement. So political discipleship is just asking the question, how do we follow Jesus in politics? Uh, and so I'm excited to talk about this today because I don't have the answer, but I, maybe I have some responses to share. That's perfect. Thank you. And I, I think you'll agree with me when I say that within the realm of discipleship, nothing should be assumed, right? We, we shouldn't, as church leaders and as pastors and as, as people who are discipling people, we shouldn't assume that people are naturally going to kind of get the Christian way of doing things, right? The, we have to be intentional about everything. And one of those things, of course, is how we engage with our political sphere. Um, and so that's why we want to be a place where, as we are discipling, we can be a safe place to have difficult conversations and not be afraid of disagreement, um, because we know that if we don't disciple people intentionally in every sphere of life, they will be discipled by someone else and by something else. Is that, is that a fair... I think Brandon's wrong. <laughs> He promised me he would disagree with everything I say, so I'm only going to say like things I'm absolutely sure yeah, part, of. Part of being a believer and following Jesus is how do we engage civilly, right? How do we engage in a way that honors God, that, that the, um, you know, how we get to our conclusions and how we represent ourselves and Jesus matters just as much as the conclusions themselves. So learning to, to disagree and to engage well is just part of what it means to, to know Christ and to follow him. So that being the case, Jonathan, I have a hard-hitting question for you. Go for it. Right. Is there one particular candidate a Christian should always vote for? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. If you, you can no, answer if you want to. Um, no, <laughs> no, but maybe, um, I don't know if you have an opening say. I wanted to share a little bit. Of yeah. Like, where, where do you start, right? So there's, yeah. There's this Bible mm -hmm. that was written over 2,000 years ago. It's not like the blue book. It's not, you know, current <laughs> and saying who to vote for, what you should do. And so, like, where's a good place to start in this book when it comes to political engagement? And I just go to the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. So, if you want, you can turn there. Uh, you don't have to. I'll, I'll, I'll read a few things here. Uh, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the picture that we get here is of chaos, of uh, the sort of chaotic nothingness where God then comes along and begins to form and shape a world where he places humanity, right? He brings order to the chaos. And then, by the end of chapter 1, God says, go and do likewise, right? And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and that they may, uh, of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, and, and so that word for subdue, this word of dominion, but it really means stewardship. Right? Go out and steward the world. Go out and steward creation. And so I like to say that God invented politics. You know, like maybe you think of politics as a dirty word, but it's really not. God invented politics in Genesis chapter 1 when he said, go out in my image, you carry my authority, and form and shape this world. That includes like building things like houses, uh, but it also includes organizing societies and cultures and cities. Uh, and so as Christians, we start there, that our, our vision is to go out and kind of do what God did, to, to create mm -hmm. flourishing, to create goodness, uh, to create order and beauty. Uh, and that's really challenging because of Genesis chapter 3, right? That mm -hmm. we live after the mm -hmm. fall. Uh, and so we can see a vision of what should be, and yet we live in a world that does not quite allow us to do it. <laughs> we live after the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're going to encounter that tension today even as we answer these questions, problems, uh, even as we answer questions. You know, we, we live and we, we see what could be, and yet it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's and even even though even when we get to Genesis chapter three in the fall, we see that the fall doesn't negate that cultural mandate. That's what, what the, the Genesis one twenty seven and twenty eight that Jonathan read. We call that the cultural mandate to go and cultivate the earth, cultivate the world. And you would think like if God's creatures who were made to to take on this cultural mandate have fallen so badly, He might just say, "Well, scrap that plan." And yet, what we see in the curse of Genesis 3 is that the cultural mandate still goes on. It's just going to be a lot harder, right? Um, and that's, that's what we experience in our world, right? We, we haven't lost God's instruction to cultivate the world or to bring order to chaos. We've only learned that it's going to be incredibly difficult for us, which gives us a lot of hope, right? <laughs> it also helps us have the right heart attitude when we approach politics, mm. right? That we're not no. putting too much trust in it because, um, because there's sin that runs through it. But then we're also not losing hope, you know? On the flip side, like, you're, you're not depressed because there is this vision that God has given us. Uh, so it's a nice, nice balance. Yeah. So we are going to take questions. Um, there's the number up on the screen. You can text me. I've gotten a couple so far. You can... Text in your questions about how we should engage in politics as Christians, um, and we will, we will be answering them along with offering some other thoughts and things along the way. This is not scripted. Jonathan and I have not prepared in any way whatsoever other than knowing each other. Um, and so if things are, are entirely off the cuff, other than the fact that we've done some reading on this stuff and, and you know, I'm, I'm the pastor, so I'm responsible for this, and um, Jonathan's done a doctorate on this, um, I do want to recommend a couple of books as we begin here. Um, one is uh, this book here, Truth Over Tribe. Um, there's a podcast that goes along with it. In fact, the book grew out of the podcast. It's a couple pastors from Missouri who said, hey, um, we're going to go out and we're going to talk to people of every political stripe and every different kind of uh, uh, conviction, and we're just going to talk, talk with them and see how they view the world. Um, and they value, uh, they want to say that we, we pledge allegiance to the lamb, not to the donkey or the elephant. That's the Subtitle here. This book right now is $3.63 on Amazon. So uh, I don't want to promote Amazon, but I do want to promote this book. So four bucks, go pick it up. It is well worth your $4. Um, 
And then the second book here I want to recommend is the book Compassion and Conviction uh, by Justin Gibney, Michael Ware, and Chris Butler, the founders of the Anne Campaign. Uh, the Anne Campaign is a really excellent Christian organization dedicated to biblical truth um, and also faithful political engagement. And so uh, this, is, um, this is an excellent book, an excellent resource. Uh, both of these, you will find, are not partisan in any way. Um, in fact, that's the whole point, is that um, to be partisan uh, actually may undermine our public witness as Christians because our allegiance is to Jesus above any person or party um, or political agenda. And so I want to recommend those before we get into our, um, our questions. Uh, I do have one more scripture I want to turn to, though, first, uh, because Jonathan has taken us to Genesis 1 and 3 and that original cultural mandate that is our political mandate to make the world, to bring order to chaos. Um, Now I want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Um, There's another book uh, that uh, Jonathan's been reading recently and then um, recommended to me, and and I I hesitated to recommend it to you because it is more scholarly. Um, but there's a book called the Ballot and the is it Bible and Ballot or Ballot and Bible? There, there's they're, two with that same title. Which one are you recommending? The well, Caitlin's <laughs> Caitlin's is actually reversed. Oh, is it? Yeah, uh, the Bible and the Ballot by Trimper Longman. I yeah, it's uh, I've been working through that as well. So it's more of a if you're wondering about particular political issues and what the Bible has to say to those issues, it's a good study. The Bible and the Ballot yeah. by Trimper Longman the third, which is an awesome name. Yes. So. <laughs> Um, the uh, the other book that we were recommending, referencing is The Ballad in the Bible by Caitlin Chess, which is much more a history of evangelical political engagement and how that's worked. It's also an excellent book just released a few weeks ago. Um, at the beginning of The Ballad in the Bible by Trimper Longman, he, he does talk a lot about this particular passage of Jeremiah, um, which personally, as I engage with politics, this is kind of my controlling uh, thought process. Um, and, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But I want to I set up this Jeremiah chapter 29, if you turn to it. Um, it's right in the middle of your Bible. And in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah the prophet is living in the city of Jerusalem. And he's writing a letter to the exiles. That is, these Jewish people who have been taken away into Babylon to live in exile for 70 years. And he's giving them God's instructions for how they're supposed to live while they're in exile. So these Jews are now living under the Babylonian empire, under Babylonian rule, um, and they're wondering, what does this mean for our faith? What does this mean for how we follow God? And these are God's instructions to his exiles through the prophet Jeremiah. So this is a letter he's writing to them. And in verse 4, we we pick up this letter that Jeremiah has written. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon— Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Uh, For me personally, as I engage with politics... Um, I, I want to engage, I want to approach the political situation I'm living in as an exile, 
as one who is allegiant to Jesus the King um, and who is primarily and first a citizen of Jesus' kingdom before I am a citizen of any earthly kingdom. Um, And the Apostle Peter actually picks up this language of exile in his letter to believers. In fact, 1 Peter 1, the very first verses, he addresses the exiles. That's not just to Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem or outside of Judea. That's to Christians under King Jesus living under the Roman Empire. Um, And a lot of his letter is about how to live faithfully and follow Jesus in the midst of an unbelieving world. Um, And so I think this theme of exile is something that um, Christians uh, really ought, need to hold on to tightly and pick up tightly, that we are exiles living under a foreign government because we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom first. Um, and that's, that's, you can find that theme picked up in many books on Christian political engagement recently. Um, that's, that's how I approach my political engagement. I want you to know that before I answer any questions. Um, Jonathan, what about you? When, you? when you're thinking for yourself and how you engage, um, what's the theme, what's the controlling narrative? Yeah, I, this, I think mine's probably pretty similar to yours. I actually think uh, Jeremiah 29.7 is just a, a repeat of Genesis chapter 1, mm. right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, be fruitful and multiply in Babylon. You know, and what does stewardship look like? What does dominion look like in Babylon? Well, it's to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. So the word politics is just based on this word of polis, right? City, to care about the city. So politics is not a dirty word. It's just, oh, you care about your city. You care about the place uh, where God has placed you and the time and the season. Uh, and I do think it is healthy. I think it's biblical uh, to view yourself as an exile, uh, and that's challenging, right? Because it, it causes you to say, okay, if I'm an exile, then this must be Babylon, right? Like we're living in Babylon. Uh, now, that means you can love Babylon. You can love your neighbors in Babylon. You can seek the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. But if you start to think that the place and the setting that you live is something beyond Babylon, uh, then I think you're, you're going a little bit astray. And that's, that's tough to hear because you can really love your place and really mm-hmm. have a deep admiration and respect for it. But I don't think those things have to be at odds. You know, to be an exile is to understand that your true home, I mean, even Abraham, right? Like he understood that his true home was a heavenly home. Uh, and yet, you know, and that's what we have to hold on to, right? Like, I'm, I'm here to represent Christ in this time and in this place, and I want to do it well, uh, and I want to do it with love for those around me, but also understanding the right place, uh, the, 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 right, the right perspective on where I live. Yeah. That's, this is perfect because it rolls right into our first question, which, w- which is, what does it mean to be a good citizen Anything beyond being informed, obeying laws, and voting. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think having that perspective of trying to represent Christ in all of life, uh, you know, and having a hard attitude of humility that none of us in this room are probably going to be, um, to have the, the amount of say to really change things. Hmm. Um, Curious to see what you think, Brandon. <laughs> I feel like we've been talking about this already. So. I know. Well, yeah, this is kind of where we've where we've camped for just a minute, anyway. Um, 
I think being a good citizen means as a Christian, and, and this is where we have to be careful. Um, we're speaking of what it means to be a good citizen of a nation as a follower of Jesus and as a Christian. Um, and I think that, that one, what Jonathan was just saying about being careful to not overly identify with our country um, and to recognize that biblically all nations are Babylon. Biblically, all human governments, all human nations are Babylon. There is no righteous nation on earth. There are some that, get, that, that are freer. There are some that are better to live in. There are some that are more just. Um, but at the end of the day, all human governments are Babylon. And so the, we, we, sitting on the stage, will not tell you that the United States is uniquely blessed by God or was uniquely founded by God or holds any special place in God's heart among the nations of the world, um, recognizing that that's hard for some Christians to hear. And yet, biblically speaking, there's no getting around that if we're faithful to what God has said about the nations of the world. Um, and so to that extent, then, being a faithful Christian citizen means being careful of how closely I identify with my nationality, um, recognizing I have more in common with a North Korean follower of Jesus than I do an American atheist. Let's, like, hold that and remember that I, have, I am more closely tied to a follower of Jesus in a country that looks radically different from mine than I am to a non-follower of Jesus in my own country. Um, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so being a good citizen rec means recognizing where my first allegiance lies and not too closely associating with my country. And then it means seeking the peace and prosperity of my neighbors to the extent that I can. And where that gets complicated in the U.S. is we live in a representative democracy where we have power. Honestly, it's a little bit easier to be a Christian in a totalitarian regime where I have no power and no say because I don't have to worry about what it means to use my influence and power in the government. I don't have that option. Here, where we have that option, that complicates our citizenship a little bit. Yeah, so to add on to that, uh, the, the word uh, for church, ecclesia, is actually a political word. Mm. It's, uh, it's a gathering. Uh, it's a public gathering. Uh, and so when you think about the church, you might not think a political body, but we actually are a political body. Uh, we're actually uh, the kingdom of God manifest in this world, right? And we're not perfect. That doesn't mean that, you know, that we're anywhere near perfect but when we think like of a christian nation like you know think of the kingdom of god and that we're little outposts little places that god has sent uh christians to represent him in the world so we're representing that larger kingdom of god um I, that that's a helpful way for, way for me to think about it yeah i think this is where paul can say paul can call himself and those who represent jesus ambassadors Right. We are ambassadors to a foreign place. Um, Paul says, we made our appeal to you as those who represent Jesus as ambassadors on his behalf. And I think as Christians, we get to adopt that mentality that I am an ambassador of a foreign kingdom to the place that I live, wherever I live, whatever place. For Paul, it was in the Roman Empire at the time. Um, as he was writing to, I can't even remember where the reference is. I think it's in Corinthians. I think it's in 2 Corinthians. But um, 
but to own that we're ambassadors for another king in this place. Um, yeah. Anything to add on that? Just you can love the place. It yeah. doesn't mean you can't love the place. Yeah. You just have to hold it in the right context. Yeah. Um, here's, so I'm just going to read this question and then we're going to kind of clarify what we think it means. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's really a few questions, um, but they all go together. So I'm going to read them all at once. Should you vote for, or if you were a king or president enact all of God's laws as human laws, even matters of the heart to the extent that it is possible? Or should we follow the logic that we should bring people to Christ and the Holy Spirit will convict and conform people to God's law? If so, where is the line for human laws that should exist? Well, I, I, I think you have to understand, um, you know, we're not Israel, right? God, God gave Israel specific laws and ordinances to follow uh, that held together that nation state through, through the story of the Bible. Uh, but those laws uh, were first and foremost for Israel. And, you know, and you could, there's different ways to interpret those Old Testament laws. And some of them you know, are moral or civil or ceremonial, different, like, you know, does that mean it's lasting? Does that mean it just applies to them? Um, and that, that framework has some limits. Um, you know, and the, the closest thing I think that we get in the New Testament is the church, right? The, God, these are God's people, those that come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it includes both Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe, every nation. Uh, and so, you know, I, I guess the question we would be asking is, like, should we take those Old Testament laws and apply them to the church? <laughs> um, and Jesus fulfills the laws, right? Like, he goes through and he's, he's fulfilled them all perfectly uh, um, because we're unable to. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that you can't look to the Old Testament, look to uh, some of those laws and try to derive principles or concepts that we can then apply to our civic engagement today. Um, but we have to remember that like uh, this nation, right, is not the kingdom of God, right? Uh, the kingdom of God is manifest in Christ Jesus, and kingdom outposts, the church, uh, but there's this sense of the now that that like the kingdom of God has come in Christ, but it's not here yet. It's not here fully. And so, um, you know, if we were to take some of those Old Testament laws and try to put them onto this world, we would be trying to make God's kingdom come now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it does not work. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there's not truth and justice and things that we should derive from the Old Testament as we go out and engage, right? Like, um, you know, valuing life, caring for the least of these, the most vulnerable, the, the poor. Like, we should take those principles, those, those truths, and apply them to our civic engagement. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's different than saying, let's take what, you know, happened in the Old Testament and apply it to the new. Yeah. Yeah, I think as you think about um, the form of government that we have and the way that we live in the world, the, the Bible actually only endorses one form of government for one group of people at a specific time. <laughs> like, the Bible does not endorse any particular other form of government. And that, the form of government that the Bible endorses is what's called theocratic monarchy, right? That God has given laws and then established a king to rule over a people. And that was for Israel and only for Israel. It was not a blanket establishment for the world. And it was not how Christians were intended to go and to be influences in the world. We weren't supposed to go make Christian nations. Um, in fact, in Acts 
chapter 1, uh, we read that Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he ascends to heaven. And they ask him a question. Um, they say, so when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Basically, are you bringing about your political rule and reign right now? Are you going to make Israel the nation of nations? And are you going to get rid of all the other nations of the world, which is what the prophet Isaiah had prophesied, that when God's king, Messiah, came, he would basically remove the other nations of the world. Israel would become the one ruling nation of the world with God as its king. And Jesus responds to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here is Jesus responding to this question, Are you going to bring about the political overthrow of the world right now through Israel? And Jesus says, you guys are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and to speak my good news, to be my witnesses in every part and in every nation of the world. And that's, that's the commission that the church gets. That's the new cultural, you think about that cultural mandate from Genesis 1 that gets reiterated in Exodus 19 with the establishment of Israel as priest kings on the earth that gets reiterated in that Jeremiah 29 passage that gets reiterated in Isaiah as Isaiah is prophesying the future that gets reiterated in the great commission of Jesus and is now reiterated again right before his ascension where Jesus says you're getting a new cultural mandate or restating the original cultural mandate you're going to get power from the Holy Spirit to go and be my witnesses not to take over with military power but to take over through the spread of my gospel, as Jesus had told in the parable of the mustard seed, or the parable of the, uh, it wasn't the mustard seed, it was the parable of the, the bush. I can't remember what bush it is. Uh, but he says, all of the birds of the air come and flock to it. It's a small bush, but all the birds of the air come and flock to it. This was his image of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to grow like this bush, and eventually it will take over the nations uh, as they flock to, to the kingdom. Uh, so, I've got, um, so the question of, of should we impose the laws of Israel, I think Jonathan has answered well, is no, those were for Israel. Um, the question then, the follow-up then to that is, what kinds of moral laws or ethical laws should Christians promote? And should they be based solely in the Bible? Or is there some other reasoning we bring to the table when we support certain policies and laws? Yeah, you know, I think another way of thinking about the question is, you know, should we use political power to, to enforce morality? And the answer is sometimes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? There are some things that we should use uh, government to, to do. That's why God gave us government. You know, we don't want people going around murdering each other. That's a, that's a moral truth. And, you know, uh, and so we can use the government for that. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. It, it helped me to come to an understanding that, that there's a reason why Christians, good Christians, disagree about how to engage in our world. And it's because the Bible is not a policy book. Mm -hmm. The Bible's not a policy book. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have... Policies that we can turn to and say, okay, how should we, how should we, you know, what law should we make about um, taxes or about um, the unborn 
or global warming. The Bible does, isn't a policy book, uh, but it does have uh, a vision of where we can head, right, to this sense of flourishing, to this goodness that we're trying to cultivate and that it's really hard to get there. Uh, for me, in, in my mind, like, what helps us, um, it comes to, like, here we are, right, and here's where we should be. And how do we get from where we are to where we should be in our culture, in our world? And that's where wisdom comes in, mm. right? We have mm -hmm. all this literature in Scripture called wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, Solomon wrote some of that. There's other authors that wrote some of that. And it's just like, how do you navigate life in a God-honoring way? Uh, and so there is no, like, one right position about things like... Um, you know, like, so the, the, the poor, right, is the, is the, our response as Christians to provide more social services to the poor or to provide jobs to the poor? Like, which one is going to do a better job of getting people out of their poverty? Well, that's where wisdom comes in, because the scripture doesn't say, go and make this law, right? And, and so when I think about, um, you know, things like marriage. And man, we live in a pluralistic society, right? And we're going to continue to live in that tension between the kingdom of God, right? The, the, it's not here in its fullness, and yet we're supposed to represent Christ. And so we can't force the kingdom of God on others, and yet we want to live in a way that represents it. So I don't know. I feel like I'm yeah. skirting the answer a little bit. <laughs> what do you think, Pastor Brandon? I, I think that we will we'll rarely go wrong if we base our policy, the, the policies that we want to see enacted, if we root them in the Imago Dei. If, 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 I, if the policies that I want to see that affect my neighbors um, are rooted in my conviction that everyone is made in the image of God, deserves dignity and value and provision, and deserves flourishing. Um, I think that is the beginning of wisdom with, with my political engagement. Now, what Jonathan said a moment ago about like, what policies will lead to the best human flourishing, we can debate that. And good-willed, loving Christian people will have different ideas about that. How much should we strengthen the social, social safety net versus giving people opportunity to work? What's the data on that? Where are we coming from on that? We can have good faith disagreements on that as long as the place we're beginning is uh, we want to see the image of God honored in every human being. Um, and I think that's the place where, where Christians have to begin. Um, and, and here's the hard part about that in a deeply polarized society. It means that as followers of Jesus, we have to assume the best of people who have different policy support, that they have different policy um, ideas than we do, right? It means that if I'm sitting across the table from a brother or sister in Christ, and they lean a little left, and I lean a little right, or vice versa, I have to assume that they're coming from a place where they really do want to see people flourish, and that the things that they're supporting, they are supporting to see people flourish. And we, we've, we've gotten to that end in different ways, um, and we can't have a, a, a healthy conversation until we give the other, other person the benefit of the doubt, and we can have conversations about that. But if we're, if we're rooting our policy in 
everyone's made in the image of God deserves to flourish and deserves uh, dignity and honor, then I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, I think I would uh, slightly disagree on that answer, um, but just a little <laughs> bit, yeah. just a little bit. Uh, I think, amen, start in Genesis 1, right, the image of God, uh, that, and that, that, that influences how I'm going to treat you, right, even though you could be making wicked policy decisions, <laughs> mm. you could be doing evil, you, your motives might be bad, or you're, you're, you might assume your motives are good, uh, and yet the fall, right, what, is the, what does the scripture say about our heart? That our heart's deceitful above all things, right? And so I need to hold those two things in tension. You're made in God's image. You're worthy of respect and dignity, and you could be wrong, and I could be wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's, it's a both and for me. I don't, you know, and I think, I think, I think assuming the best of people is a good starting point, but I also think we all, we all are wrestling with the, the consequences of the fall. And so we're not always going to have good motives. Or our, 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 our vision of what flourishing is is going to be bent, right? Like my vision of, of what is good for the world might not actually be what is good for the world. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good counterpoint. That's a good tension to hold, to remember. Yeah, I think that's why I was trying to, to make the clarification that when we're talking to a brother or sister, but yeah, even as a brother yeah, or sister, my up. motives could be, and that's could why be we wrong. New hearts, right? Yeah. That's why our king yeah. is also a surgeon. <laughs> yes. He's giving us new hearts. And so I assume the best about you, Brandon. I assume the best of okay, you, except you. for in that when you disagree <laughs> with me and then I, then you're not. No. Um, and this is where wisdom, discernment, and the Holy Spirit come in, right? Sure. And, and growing. Um, let's, uh, let's go to a couple of other questions. Thinking about local, state, national politics, and engagement, should we prioritize one over the other? It's been said all politics is local. Um, I think th- this, is, this is a tricky one. I think if we focused more on local politics, like if every engaged voter actually focused more on local politics, we'd probably have less uh, polarization and less arguing and fighting over national politics uh, because we would actually know people who disagree with us on the local level and we would be pursuing those policies that make for flourishing in our local community um, and that, that we would actually see a trickle up in terms of civility and, and the ways that we cooperate. I could be wrong about that. That's my hopeful, optimistic view is if we started local and actually engaged local, we got a whole lot of armchair politicians out there who are pontificating about national politics and have never done one thing to raise a finger for their actual neighbor, and those people need to shut their mouths. We're, we're sitting in armchairs. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Jesus said, love your neighbor, right? And I don't think he meant, like, your neighbor that you hear about on the news that lives a thousand miles away from you. Maybe that's your neighbor that you should love in, like, a general sense of, like, we live in a, a nation, so we should, lo- we should be thinking about the flourishing of our whole nation. But, yeah, we can have a much more embodied impact with our actual neighbors. Mm-hmm. So get involved locally. Get involved. Run for school board. Um, there's one question I'm going to hold off till the end. It was the first question I got, but it's, <laughs> it's an important one. I want the person who asked it to know. It's an important question, and we are going to talk about it at the very end, um, but it, it is how I want to end. Uh, 
we're, we're getting into, we got the next question, it's more nitty-gritty. How important is a candidate's character in deciding how to vote? I'm going to let you take that one first. Yeah, you know, I find that we care about character. Um, I, I don't know. I don't want to make generalizations. I think character truly does matter. I mean, I think how you get to your destination matters just as much as the destination. You know, that like if I, if I accomplish all of my political ends, but I do it in a vitriolic way, that doesn't sound like dominion and flourishing. That sounds more like chaos to me. Mm -hmm. Even if I get the results I want. You know, the, the narrative of scripture is a story of, um, of a serpent and a seed, right? The, serp the seed of Eve, who is going to be the Messiah, right? Who's going to defeat the serpent. But then as you read through scripture, you also see, you know, people who become agents of the serpent, right? Goliath is an agent of the serpent. Uh, other characters throughout scripture are really living in a way that, that um, is trying to return creation to a state of chaos. And so we have to be really careful that like we might think, oh, this candidate is going to get us to a place of flourishing, but if they're doing it in a chaotic um, vitriolic way, then that looks, that just smells of the serpent. That doesn't smell of the seed to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the character absolutely matters. We, we, we balance that with the understanding that, you know, the devil can come as an angel of light, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can, by outward appearances, look at someone and, and think that everything is, is right and good. And yet, also, I think if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we've been gifted with the ability to wisely discern um, and to read what, what people are saying, what they're doing to put things up. Um, on this particular question, I want to address something very particular um, that Christians have engaged in in the past 10 years or more um, that really gets my hackles up. And, and this is really terrible. Uh, for eight years, Obama was in the White House. And you've heard the phrase, no drama Obama, right? Like, this was a guy who had zero uh, real personal and moral scandals while in the White House. Regardless, we're not talking about policy. We're talking about personal character at this point, right? Who, for eight years, um, had a, a fairly sterling reputation for personal uh, morality in the White House. Um, again, regardless of politics, regardless of political position. And we saw many Christians of a certain political stripe do nothing but put this man down and his family for eight years and make what amounted to absolutely false claims um, about him to slanderous claims about him in order to undermine his moral character, in order to undermine his his presidency. Um, and many of those same people who argued that character mattered when Bill Clinton had an affair, who argued that character mattered when they were trying to slander Obama, turned around and began to vociferously defend Donald Trump, who is a person, regardless of your policy and regardless of what you think of him as a politician, is, a, is an objectively terrible person. Just objectively terrible Person. And you saw Christians who for a long time 
had argued about character mattering and had tried to slander a president who had no real moral scandal or failures, um, who had tried to uh, put down Clinton after, rightly so, denounce Clinton's moral failures, stand up and vociferously defend this person who has zero moral character. That is wrong. No Christian should ever engage in that kind of speech, ever. Um, you can vote for someone because you think that their policy decisions will be best, but be honest about who that person is. You can disagree with someone's policy positions, but be honest about who that person is. Um, and so when we engage in this, it's important that Christians remember um, that telling lies about someone in order to defend them or to put them down is still slander and is still wrong, period, full stop. There's just no excuse for it. Um, and so I want to, when we're t approaching these issues of character and of policy, the, the number one thing we need to remember in terms of the way that we talk about this is to be honest and just to be clear and not try to push the truth aside in order to defend what we think are better policy decisions. There were many good reasons to vote for whoever you voted for, but lying about their character is not one of them ever. So... Yeah. Um, Brandon just I say that as the pastor here, Jonathan, is unaffiliated. <laughs> uh, what, what Brandon just did was this example of speaking prophetically, right? And, and um, saying hard truths that we can just wrestle with. So thank you for sharing those things. Um, I wanted to clarify a little bit of what I said, too, and that you can be a politician who leads a quiet and dignified life and has good character, but then creates policy decisions that also smell of the serpent, mm -hmm. also smell of the snake. And so character is no guarantee of mm -hmm. a, a, a God-honoring politician. Uh, but I do think it is a fruit of, I, I think, you know, we measure things by their fruit, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, and I'm not going to make a judgment one way or the other, but I, I think you make some good points. Thank um, you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so we've got a couple more questions here. I want to wrap up. One, um, so we are obviously right now, uh, there is a war happening in Israel. Um, in, in many ways, a civil war. Um, in other ways, it is a war between differing um, political groups, different political entities. And right now in the media, and especially in certain types of Christian media, you will hear this wholesale defense of Israel because Israel is God's nation and Christians should defend Israel no matter what. Um, and, and in some circles, you'll be hearing that this is the path toward the return of Jesus. The success of Israel is the path to Jesus returning. Um, and again, I'm speaking as the pastor here and of our theological position, okay? Um, the nation of Israel today is not biblical Israel. There has only ever been one people of God. The people called out as Israel in the Old Testament. Um, and then Jesus comes and becomes their king, expands the borders of Israel to include the entire world, and expands the ethnic makeup of Israel to include 
all people who will pledge allegiance to him regardless of where they're from. That is the one people of God. The church does not replace Israel. The church is Israel expanded under King Jesus. Um, The nation of Israel today is not biblical Israel, which means Christians do not have a moral and biblical obligation to support Israel no matter what. Now, there, that is not to say there are not good political reasons to support Israel. That's not to say there, are, there aren't good historical reasons about the oppression of Jews, that we should be supporting Israel as a nation, uh, as a country. That there's, there are many good arguments to be made as to why the nation of Israel should exist today. The idea that it is biblical Israel is not one of them, um, because it is not biblical Israel. And so whether God is on the side of Israel as it exists today or not is not a question I can answer. What I can say, as I said earlier, is that all human nations biblically are Babylon. The only one that is not is the kingdom of God, which was Israel in the Old Testament and is now expanded to be the church today. So that the Israel we see on the world stage today is a Babylon as much as any other nation of the world. They can make good decisions. They can make bad decisions. They can make decisions that are in line with human flourishing and in line with the principles of the kingdom of God, and they can make decisions that aren't. And so what I want you to hear me saying is how the, whether you defend or support Israel as a nation um, should be based on the decisions that they're making that are in line with the kingdom of God or not. But a wholesale defense of the nation, because we think it's biblical Israel, is really, it's, it's muddled, muddy thinking that doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. Does that make sense? Anybody want to push back on that? This gets into a system of theology that's called dispensationalism or covenant theology. I want you to understand that here we are not a dispensational church. We do not hold to dispensational theology. Um, And we will talk more about that at some other point. We can't get into the weeds of it today. Um, But dispensational theology says one of its primary tenets is that Israel and the church are different and separate things. And God has a relationship with Israel and God has a relationship with church. And those are not the same relationship. But at the end of the day, when Jesus, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, he will bring those two things together. In covenant theology, which we hold to, we say, no, there are not two separate peoples of God. There's one people of God from Genesis to Revelation. We are in that people. And Jesus, when he comes as the king of Israel, expands its borders ethnically and physically to include the whole world and all people, regardless of ethnicity, who will pledge allegiance to him. And so that's, that's where we come from in our teaching. That's where we always will come from in our teaching. Um, so I want you to know that. Anything to... <laughs> no, I was wondering, I was like, I wonder what the question's going to come up about Israel and Palestine, because it's yeah. so hard. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, as I read scripture, it seems like, you know, when I read Romans, personally, this is my interpretation, it seems like God's not done with Israel yet, that there's something that God has in store for the Jewish people, um, right? But that's, that's a narrative of redemption and... Um, you know, a, a kingdom of God narrative. And I think it's really important to, to understand the sort of, like this is a nation, that, and, you know, we're the church, and like how should we think about the Israel and Palestine conflict? Well, we should remember 
everything we've been talking about, right? That everyone involved in that conflict is made in the image of God, both Jew and Palestinian. And so, like, I want to treat both sides with dignity and respect. How can we care for both sides? What, what would the flourishing look like? And I don't have the answer. I mean, the conflict there is thousands of years old. Um, and yet we can want what's best for both sides. We can want the common good. You know, and to want what's best for Israel is to want them to have a good relationship with their neighbors, to have a, a mutually beneficial relationship. And so I think we should absolutely be praying, and I think that's something maybe we haven't talked about enough today, is that mm. you know, God mm -hmm. calls us to pray. He calls us to, you know, I pulled up 1 Timothy 2, you know, pray for kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. There's your political mandate. <laughs> pray. Hmm. Uh, yeah. and we shouldn't underestimate the power of what prayer can accomplish in this moment between Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. I, I feel a little hopeless. I feel a little depressed about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I know that God is a God who restores and redeems and, and resurrects. It can bring life out of death. Uh, and so are we praying for God to bring political life out of this terrible tragedy and, and war? I, I think we should be. Hmm. And none of this, none of this should amount to a wishy-washy, like say, saying all sides are equal and everybody's in the same boat and all sides are equally bad and equally good because we can full-throatedly say Hamas is a terrorist organization. What happened on October 7th was undefensible and a tragedy and horrendous and horrible and awful. Um, I was listening to a, a Christian commentator, uh, a Christian political commentator on this recently talking about um, the... He's a, a, a political science guy, um, and he was like, the, the path forward seems to be uh, both the utter destruction of Hamas and a state for Palestine, right? And how do you get there, right? How, and so that's, that's the question they're wrestling with. And as, as Christians on the other side of the world who really what we can do is pray and take it to the Father, um, you don't have to have an opinion on that. You don't have to have an opinion on that. You don't have to have an opinion on the path forward. You don't have to have an opinion on the peace process. Um, but we can full-throatedly say terrorism is terrorism and horrible and evil and awful. And anyone who gauges in it is destroying image, image bearers of God um, and is not working to the good of anyone, period. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so don't hear us saying the, it's complicated who you support and how you support them as saying we can take a wishy-washy stance on absolute evil in the world. When evil is done, it is evil and should be called out as such, period, no matter who is doing it or who you think is right in the situation. Right. Um, yeah, yeah wicked's, wickedness is wickedness, and it doesn't do any good to not call it wickedness, uh, right? And the answer to it is really hard, though, because, you know, you know we're the church, and, yeah. and you know, how... What I like about today is that, you know, we're not saying, like, we as the church are, the church body is not going to be the one that's doing the political stuff, but you're all going to be sent out maybe a little bit more, you know, reflective, and hopefully that'll make us all better citizens mm -hmm. in the places that God sends us mm -hmm. as we go out and represent him so that we can bring life to the places that God has given us, and, and let's all be praying for the conflict that, yeah. that God does something there. Absolutely. Well, we're going to turn to the last question that was sent in now, um, and then we'll have a few f final comments uh, because we are getting close to 11. Um, the last question, which was the first question that came in, is 
How do you deal with a family member who has been drawn into conspiracy theories? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Man. Yeah, wrestled with that one uh, in pastoral ministry. Mm. Well, you know, we, we do have to, like the truth sets us free, right? Like we want to represent the truth. Uh, we want to do it humbly. So patience, mm. patience, humility, sharing the truth, a prayer, a soft heart, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all going to believe what we want to believe, not necessarily what is true. Um, and our hearts are deceptive. So that, like there's a spiritual element there. Anytime our hearts are attracted to something that isn't true, that's not of the Lord. And so there is a spiritual reality that we have to address. It's, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have really the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's question and response, right? Yeah. And that's... Rage. <laughs> Rage. Yeah, this, this is a really hard one, right? We, we've all got people who have been drawn in. Now, the question specifically said far-right conspiracies. I, I want to make it, I want to open it up to say anybody who's brought into yeah. any conspiracies. Let's be, let's be honest, right at this point in our, in our national discourse, that's happening more on the right side than on the left. Um, and yet we see extremism on both sides. And uh, anytime someone is drawn into extremism, it, extremism lives on lies. It lives on dehumanization. Extremism lives on misrepresenting people on the other side, whatever the other side is from you. When you get to the point of extremism by demonizing and belittling people who think differently. Uh, you can't be an extremist without dehumanizing the people that you disagree with. Um, and so just humanizing and loving people well is going to bring us to a place of more civil discourse. Um, maybe not always, but I, so I think the first step is to see your family members and friends who are being drawn into lies as human beings that God loves, that Jesus died for, um, who have a hope and a future in him and only in him and representing truth. But one thing you cannot do with people who are being drawn into conspiracy theories and to lies is hose them with what you think is truth. That will only drive people further deeply into their extremist roles. Um, you must lead with love. You must lead with love. And that doesn't mean endorsing the lies that they're believing. We live, unfortunately, in a society and in a time that tells us that love is affirming people in what they believe and in who they perceive themselves to be. And there are many times and examples in our own lives when love is exactly the opposite. It's confronting those things. And yet confronting them, as Jesus told us, as uh, wise as serpents and harmless as doves confronting with love and leading with a care and an embrace of, of humans even when you're not embracing what they've believed or where they've been led. Yeah, I think another component too I, I would add, just two things, um, embodied presence, mm. being present yeah. in their lives. Because I think the temptation is to isolate yourself from that, to be like, I can't stand this family member or neighbor or friend 
and I'm, I'm done with the relationship. And so being present and then being gentle in your answers, just sharing mm -hmm. what, what you believe to be true and maybe even framing this, like, as I understand this, this is what I see, right? Inviting someone into a conversation um, as opposed to stating, uh, you know, absolutes, because I think the absolutes are going to just, you're going to hit a wall. Um, so having a conversation, asking them, why, what do you think? Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're going to read this piece of literature that kind of leads you to that point. Okay, I'll read that. Would you read something that I've, I've brought together, I've brought out? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. really hard. That takes a lot of time and investment. I don't really want to do that because it's too much effort, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's no quick solution oh. um, to this, but mm -hmm. no. Yeah, and I think that's important, leading with curiosity as to what, like, find out why people, people don't believe what they believe based on hard fact. People believe almost nothing based on fact and argumentation. People believe what they believe because of some emotional, because they're being drawn there, because they're being lured there, because they're being pulled in. It's one of the things that we, when we talk about evangelism, uh, when we talk about speaking the good news of Jesus or sharing the good news of Jesus, um, we want to always lead with the beauty of Christ and the emotional call to Jesus. It's why people are drawn to emotive worship. It's why people are drawn to beauty. It's why the cathedrals of old were built with the beauty that they were built. It's why there's incense in high church places. It's, it's about creating atmospheres because human beings have long recognized that we are drawn by our emotions before we're drawn by our head. Um, the sociologist Jonathan Haidt talks about the elephant and the writer, that every human being uh, has an elephant and a writer. And your elephant is kind of your emotional self that goes where it will. Uh, and the writer is the logical self, the thinking self. And the writer always thinks they're in charge, but it's a freaking elephant, people, right? Um, and that the writer is really good at justifying where the elephant goes after the fact. Um, so we draw people with their hearts, we draw people with emotions, and if, you're wanna, if you want to talk to friends and neighbors and loved ones who are being drawn into lies, lead with the heart, lead with the emotion, lead with the care um, to draw people back into truth. Um, there, there's, not a, there's not a divorce between the head and the heart. Um, if you've been in like the reform world a long time, there's this heavy emphasis on the high head and good theology. If you've been in like charismatic circles, there's a really heavy emphasis on the heart and where it draws us. And the fact is that as good followers of Jesus who believe we are holistic beings made, in, made all together, um, we lead with both. We think the head and the heart are both important. Um, the second thing, very practical, get off of social media. Stay away, especially, especially if you notice that when you see posts from certain people, your heart starts to do a thing, you start to, to dehumanize them or you start to judge them or you start to put them down based on the posts that you see from them, get away from that. Anything that's going to cause you to start to look down on someone or to put them down because of what they're putting out there on social media, get away from it. And if you need to delete that account, delete that account, get away it will wreck your heart and it will wreck your relationships. Um, social media relationships are almost never real relationships. And yet we've gotten to the place where we think sometimes that our social media friends are actually friends. It's even the language that we use. These are not real relationships if you're just observing what people are putting up. Right? So 
One of the things I admire about you, Brandon, is your ability to speak prophetically. Thank you. And they killed the prophets, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so that's, that's where we are. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Happy to, happy yeah. to engage further in personal conversation afterwards. Yeah. You might have more pushback. There, there are more questions to be answered. Um, we didn't answer what party you should always vote for, and the answer is green. Um, we didn't answer, <laughs> we didn't get into whether you can vote for politicians who have policies that differ from you. Um, I think where I want to end here uh, is, is where we've kind of been sitting, which is our political engagement and the policies that we support um, should be driven by love for people and by a desire to see their flourishing and the kingdom of God come. Now, unfortunately, no one candidate and no one policy, uh, party position is going to fully embrace that. Um, and so we are going to have to make compromises in the p politicians that we support. Every single politician is a compromise for a Christian voter. Every single one. And so there is value in saying, look, these are the positions, these are the policies that I think are most important and holding to that and holding that line. As long as doing that doesn't make you dehumanize or hate or put down people who hold different policy priorities. And so that means Christians can vote for Democrats. Christians can vote for Republicans. I would advocate voting more for individual candidates than for party. Look at the candidate. Look what they're doing. Is what they're promoting going to be most beneficial in bringing about the kingdom of God or pursuing human flourishing according to your values and according to your vision of human flourishing as set forth by Jesus in his word? And then go to the voting booth. Then evaluate your candidates. Um, that, so that, that would be kind of my final, my final encouragement. Vote according to love and human flourishing in the, in the image of God. So it's final word. Your fi that, was, that was my final word okay. today. Okay. Here's my Your final, final word. word. Here's my final word. Um, Jesus is on the throne. Amen. And Jesus is not going to get off the throne. No matter the circumstances, no matter the politician or party. And guess what? We started in a garden in Genesis 1. A place of flourishing where there was no sin. And guess where we are going to end up? In a garden. But there's also going to be a city there. A garden city at the end of Revelation. And so that, means, that gives you hope no matter what. No matter how good it gets, no matter how bad it gets, we are going to a garden city. Where there will be perfect political engagement. You guys will all finally have it right. <laughs> I'll finally have it right. Brandon will be almost there. It'll be great. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And so, like, we, we can walk out of here both fully aware of our own fallenness and our own shortcomings and yet hopeful of where our future lies. And so this is the perfect word on which to come to this table. Because we sit here, people who vote differently, who think differently about the world, who think differently about politics, who have probably... Uh, gone to the voting booth with very different ideas and mentalities, and yet we sit here as people who are beholden to King Jesus, who are allegiant to King Jesus, and who are citizens of his kingdom above all others. And it's his body and his blood that unite us.